All right, let's, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah. We're continuing from chapter 31. And I want to just say a quick prayer. Lord, I pray right now, this is the most exciting chapter, one of them in the Old Testament, one of them. And I pray right now that you'd open our hearts to it and that we would be so excited as we journey through this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. How many have ever been on a trip or you've gone hiking in the woods or you've gone up into the mountains and you've come upon a beautiful vista? You've seen it and it takes your breath away. Anybody ever had those moments where you were just, you're literally were, it was breathtaking. Anybody have a breathtaking moment, a scenic place? I want you to know this chapter is one of those places. We're gonna have a vista, a beautiful moment. I hope it's breathtaking for you as we look through what Jeremiah is saying because God is speaking through him. Now these promises I think are a high point in the Old Testament. Here's a broken Divided nation, hearing these amazing promises, that's going to change even the nature of their covenant with God. It's going to introduce what you and I experience as the new covenant. And not, this covenant is so powerful, it not only impacts the nation, but it's going to begin to impact individuals. And that's what I love about the new covenant, because it's personal and it's intimate. Each one of us can connect with God individually, not just collectively. We do that as well, but it's also individual. But it, what's implied, uh, sorry, uh, God will not only be the God of this united nation, but God will be the God of all nations. I love that. He will write his laws on our hearts and he will live within us. That's the promise of the new covenant. Uh, it, it goes, it's implied, but it's not stated. God will not, oh, okay. It's implied but not stated. Yeah, I see what I did. What makes these verses significant to us in our lives is that they speak of God's restorative work in our lives. What is often shattered by sin, and that's true. Sin always does this in our life. It creates sorrow and loss. We can anticipate that. Even when the sins of other people crash into our world and they cause us pain, even though it's not our sin, it's someone else's sin, and that can happen. People that were close to a sin affect us. I mean, you know, we could talk about the effect of a, a person who's inebriated driving a vehicle and hits somebody and kills them. How does that affect a whole bunch of strange people that had nothing to do with that situation? We see this all the time. Even in those terrible situations, God is in the restoration business. This is the part we need to hear. Repentance from sin or forgiveness towards the perpetrators in our lives that have hurt us are keys in bringing about this restorative work in our lives. I think there's other seasons in our lives where we're, we're being stretched spiritually. Anybody had moments in your life where you feel like, I'm not doing anything wrong, but life has gotten very difficult. Anybody have those kind of experiences? And sometimes you feel like, you know, you're in a wilderness experience. It feels like God is transcendent. He's so far away. You almost feel like, God, are you still around in my life? Because it seems you're distant to me. I sense that in my, my soul. And maybe today you're in a time of great struggle. And maybe God appears to you as distant. Yet I want you to know that after those moments, there's a season of refreshing, a season of renewal. And I want to look at those moments because they're very, very powerful, this restoration in our lives. The Bible says it this way very poetically. 
Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. After every difficult season in life, God will bring about a season of blessing and refreshing to us. And I love that about God. Now, how many know it's true that we normally don't celebrate being disciplined? How many go, oh, good. I'm, I, I'm being taken out to the woodshed kind of thing. I mean, God's taking me to the room. I have a little conversation, and I'm being disciplined. No, no nobody, I don't see most of us going, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, not usually. But there is a joy to follow that experience, and that's what this amazing chapter is going to speak to us of. So we see that a time of dancing and celebration are actually about to occur when God is going to bring his promises to fulfillment. Now, you ever had those moments in life where you just felt like, wow, this is a surreal moment. I cannot believe what's happening. All the good stuff is coming my way, and I haven't done anything. It's just happening. Anybody have moments like that in your life where you're just going, boy, it's almost like, you know, uh, you hit the right button and, you know, things are just falling towards you. It's like God is doing this amazing thing in our lives. So I want to take a look here of the, the three expressions of God's grace in a time of renewal. And I believe that we're moving towards that collectively as a society. You know why we're doing, you know, you know why it's happening? Because we need it to. There's been so much brokenness, so much heartache, so much sorrow, so much loss. Yes, we've lived in an affluent time, but there's been a lot of challenge and difficulty in our lives. But God is about to do some very exciting things. And I want to take a look here at these three expressions. And the first one is simply the comfort and joy that comes instead of sorrow. How many like it, you know, when God begins to comfort you? Or God brings joy into your life. You know, the good things are now happening. Uh, there's nothing more exciting than the unexpected reversal of fortune, where you've gone from everything going wrong to everything starts going right. That's a nice time, right? You're just going, boy, it helps you to forget the pain back here, because now you're in a new season of time. The message begins with a reminder here in our text of God's faithful love in their history as a nation. It was God who fashioned them as a nation in slavery. Remember, they were led down into Egypt. And then God cared for them by delivering, delivering them out of slavery in a very miraculous and powerful way. The powerful nation of Egypt was not able to handle what God was doing in their midst. And God led them out. And when they changed their mind to pursue the nation of Israel, they came up to the Red Sea. And what did God do? He parted the water. So he made a highway in the sea. We just sang that. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God can make a highway in the middle of our seas. God can make, you know, uh, a way where there appears to be no way in our lives. He can still part seas for us. And then they got on the other side and God took care of them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then God brought them into the promised land and allowed them to defeat these nations that were far stronger than they were and blessed them while they were in the promised land. But you know what happened? They forgot God. And we see that many times in our culture, how people are really blessed and then they forget God. It's tragic, but I've witnessed it over and over again. And God, you start to see people who now start to trust something other than God. They start trusting in themselves. They start trusting in their resources. They start trusting in what other people are trusting in. And pretty soon, they're in trouble. And God started warning them and telling them, hey, 
I'm over here, I care about you, stop doing this, you know? You're embracing the value system of the society that you're living in, but it's a society of death. I can just see, can you, how many are getting a feeling? It sounds very similar to where we're living. And God is telling us, don't listen to that. Follow my ways. But they, they didn't listen. They actually continued to rebel against God until God, after centuries, led them into exile. He allowed them to be cast away. And he led them to a season of discipline. And why does God discipline? In order to awaken something inside of us. And the ultimate expression of it was this exile. And now in exile, now they're awakening. And now they're broken. And there's tears and sorrow. And they're suffering. And God, in the darkest hour, speaks words of hope. I love that about God. Words of reassurance. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the family of, of Israel. And they will be my people. You see, you have to understand something. The nation of Israel, the land was promised. The city of Jerusalem was the holy city. The temple was in the city, which represents the presence of God. Now they're cast away. And they felt like they were estranged from God. And how many know that? That's what sin does. It cuts us off from God. And they felt estranged from God. They felt far away from God. But now God says here, I, I'm gonna, I will be your God. I will actually, you will be my people. God says, I'm gonna restore the relationship. How many like that? a restored relationship. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness, and I will come to give rest to Israel. A great words of reassurance, words of reconciliation and forgiveness. In other words, God is likening this experience in exile, coming back to the promised land as to their very beginning when they were brought out of slavery into the promised land. He's making, this is the second exodus. This is a renewal of what happened earlier. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. You know, maybe we can, you know, we get saved. We can walk with God and then we get far away from God and God goes, yeah, but I'm a God of the second chance. I'll bring you back to where you need to be. I love that about God. Isn't that great? He goes on here uh, to lead them out. Walter Brueggemann says it this way. Thus, God will now do in exile what God did at the outset in Egypt when God formed a new people out of a disparate and hopeless social units. And he explains his motive for doing it. Why does God, you know, do this for us? Why is God so good to us? And it says here, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with a, what kind of love? An everlasting love. He says, I have drawn you with unfailing kindness you know, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the patience of God. You know, God is unlike us. You and I, we just get fed up after a while. We just give up on things. God's not like that. His patience is unlimited. It's amazing. And he's calling us to himself. He says, I'm gonna build you up again, virgin Israel. We'll be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. So what is God saying? You know when there's restoration? There's great joy. You know, this passage here reminds me of a story Jesus told in the New Testament. 
You know, he was being criticized because sinners were coming into the kingdom of God and Jesus told him a parable. And the latter part of the parable was the story of a prodigal son who had gone off, but when he came to himself, he came back to the father's house and what did the father do? He ran out and embraced the son. He forgave the son. He clothed the son. He gave them, a, a, he renewed his identity. He gave them a ring. He gave him authority. And then what did God do? He threw a party. Isn't that amazing? Bring out the fatted calf. Let's party. And then Jesus says, God's angels rejoice in heaven over one repentant sinner. I want you to know that God gets down. He has his angels. I mean, I can see it now. They're just rejoicing in heaven. When one person repents, all of heaven explodes into a party. So I have, an, I have a feeling heaven has a party atmosphere to it. Heaven has a party atmosphere to it. People are celebrating all the time. There's joy in heaven. Why wouldn't there be? No sin, and God's presence is there, and in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And here we read that when God did this great work for Israel and parted the Red Sea, what did the Israelites do on the other side? They wrote a little song, Moses and Marion, came up, you know, they were inspired by God, they wrote a nice tune, and pretty soon, you know, the ladies were all dancing, everybody was singing and having a great time. You know, and sometimes as Christians, here we are, enjoying the presence of God, and we're gloomy and full of doom and doubt and despair, and I'm going, come on, guys. Let's get focused in. Yes, there are problems in this world, but our God is bigger than those problems. Our God is greater than your troubles today. You and I need to look beyond those things and see a God who cares about us with an everlasting love, and he can restore what the enemy has taken away from our lives. Well, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry on the hills of Ephraim, come, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. Robert Davison says the first passage begins by reminding the people of their past, a past which clearly witnessed the grace and the ever-present love of God. Here was a God who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, who protected them from a pursuing Egyptian army, and who cared for them at Mount Sinai long ago. This is a God who does not change. Aren't you glad for that? The same God that led uh, Israel out of Egypt is the same God that led Israel out of Babylon, is the same God that leads you and I out of sin. Yeah. Hallelujah. Who is totally dependable, who maintains his hesed. That's a Hebrew word. And it really, it means literally his unfailing, everlasting, covenantal love. It's his faithfulness, his steadfast love. I love that about God. Jeremiah is using geographical locations to speak of a united kingdom. The hills of Samaria and Ephraim are part of the northern kingdom. Wait a minute, didn't, Bab, didn't the southern kingdom of Judah go into exile? Yeah, but God says, but I'm gonna bring back a people from all over the place. I'm gonna unite the nation. You see, sin always divides us and God's restorative work always unites us. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I always say division is not of God. Think about the, all the problems it creates. You know, here they're called to go up to Zion to worship. Now, Zion, what does that mean? Well, Zion speaks of the temple. Zion speaks of 
uh, the city of Jerusalem. That's another name for Jerusalem is Zion. It's speaking of the place where God is worshiped. And see, the southern kingdom, the capital of the, the United Kingdom was Jerusalem. Remember that. And David brought the nation together. And David, led by God, was shown the place where to build the temple. And he built it on the hill called Zion. So that speaks of the presence of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? So God is saying, listen, I'm gonna bring the nation together and you're gonna worship once again. I'm gonna restore Zion. I'm gonna restore the temple. God's making some amazing promises. God is basically describing a joyful homecoming of a scattered people. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Is anybody getting a sense this is kind of a celebratory uh, song? He says, make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside the streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Now, I need to just point something out to us as we're looking at this chapter. Do you notice this is actually poetry? The whole chapter is poetry. Look at the way it's framed. This is not a narrative passage. And do you understand what poetry is? Poetry is symbolic. It's a lot of symbolism in this chapter. That's why you have to pause and think about what's being said. And you have a little understanding of things here. You know... Jeremiah is painting a picture into the hearts of these downtrodden people who are living in defeat and exile. Here is a hope that's being expressed to sustain them in this hour. And I love what Robert Davidson says, and it says it so beautifully. Now they are to come back as the chief of nations. But this is a new kind of greatness. This is the part I like. It is the greatness of the remnant of Israel, the few who survived national disaster and long years in exile, now to be delivered and gathered home again by God. Their new greatness lies in what God has done for them and in nothing else. Their greatness is not in themselves. That's what he's saying. He goes on, they come back not like a triumphal army flaunting its power, but as a great company bringing with them those in need of care and protection. The blind, the lame, the pregnant women, women in labor. They come back not in arrogance or self-confidence, but weeping and praying, scarcely able to believe what is happening to them as God takes care of their needs and smooths the way before them. Isn't that the way God restores us? We don't come back in triumph. We come back in brokenness. We come back recognizing we've sinned against God. There's weeping and contrition in our hearts. There's a, a, a call out to God for mercy. And God hears this cry. You know, it's God that makes the way for us. It's God that restores us. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's what's God doing for us. But we're responding to that in a powerful way. And then, you know, we're kind of like the prodigal. We come home. We find our way back to the Father's house. It's this amazing grace of restoration. And then what does God do? He throws a party for his prodigals. Any prodigals here today? Listen, we're all prodigals. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. But now we've come to the Father's house. It's a party. It's party time. 
Listen to what it says in verse 11. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. He goes on to say, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. I like that last part. In other words, God says, I'm going to take care of you. You've come home. I'm going to take good care of you. How many like that? I like that idea of coming to the Father's house and he's saying, you're not going to tear up anymore. I'm going to take care of you. You know, then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness and I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. You see, that's why I entitled the sermon, Let's, It's Time to Dance and Celebrate. It's time to rejoice. It's a time to delight in God. When we get right with God, it just brings great joy in our lives. You know, the Bible says in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Wow, Lord, even so come. You know, bring us to the Father's house, right? Spirit of God, make this real to us. Here we see God would ransom or deliver them and redeem them from those who were politically and militarily stronger than them. Like the first exodus, this exodus will bring them back to the promised land where they're going to experience agricultural bounty. The atmosphere is one of celebration, which is also reflected in Psalm 126, where he says, the Lord will restore the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dreamed. How many of you have ever had those moments, you know, where you're going through a difficult time and you go to bed and you dream this amazing, positive, uh, nice dream, you know? It's like those who dream. This is too good to be true, right? But God says, I'm gonna do something that's too good to be true. It'll feel that way. It'll be surreal to you. That's what he's saying. Uh, Our mouths will be filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Isn't it great? People look at us and they go, the only way to explain how your life is now going is what God has done for you. God has done a great thing. God has brought blessing into your life. Let me tell you, when I came to Christ as a young person, I was 21 years old, I was broken, I was, you know, really hurting, and I came, and I gave my life to Jesus, I started coming to church every Sunday, it felt like the Spirit of God was using the Word of God to bring healing in the broken places of my soul. But I'll tell you something, I look back now, that's a long time ago, over four decades ago, And when I look back now, it's amazing. I see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I've seen the bounty of God. I've seen the blessing of God. I've seen the kindnesses of God. It's a life lived without very little regret now because of, you know, when you walk with God, there's not a lot to regret. When you obey God, God's blessings follow. It's an amazing life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. And I can say after 40 some odd years, 47 or eight, I said, yes, God has done it. God has been good. God has done great things, not only for me, but I've been a part of this church for 35 years, and I can say, God has done great things for us. Hallelujah. And then he mentions here uh, the priests. He said, Tremper Longman says, the priests are specified as receiving God's abundance. Thus, the priests who survive will reap the reward. He said, 
This is notable, particularly since the priests have received their share of blame for the judgment that will come on Israel because of their sin. However, the point is clear. The entire remnant will enjoy prosperity. But let me move to the second expression. And it comes from our repentant response. So God says, I'll remove uh, the, the sorrow and give comfort and joy. But what precedes that is our response to God's goodness. It's our, our repentant response. Do you know, repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning to God. It's actually an action. We actually do something. You know, God changes, helps us. We change our mind and we turn to God and we turn away from where we were. There's something that changes here. It's powerful. This is what the Lord says. A voice heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this passage is familiar to us if we know the Christmas story because this is what Matthew quotes when the, the innocent children in Bethlehem are slain. Remember, this is the verse he's quoting. Now, what is all of this about? Let me explain it. Who is Rachel? Well, we know who she is. She was married to Jacob. That was his beloved wife. Remember that? And she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But when she was <clears throat> having Benjamin, she ends up losing her life. And just before she dies, she calls him Ben-Omi which means the son of pain or the son of my sorrow. She was dying, and she died. Jacob did not want to be reminded every day when he said Ben-Omi would be the son of my pain. He changed his name to Benjamin, which is the son of my right hand, the son of my strength. He turned what was sorrowful into joy. He wanted to think of the good that came out of that pain. He wanted to remember his beloved wife in a positive way, not in a negative way. So Robert Davidson, before we get to here, was gonna say, you know, so this is fascinating to me. Joseph goes into Egypt. He's the one that God blesses and uses to save the people. Later on, he's reunited to his father, Jacob. Jacob sees Joseph's two sons. You know what their names are? Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says, from this point on, they will be my sons. And so when we think of the, the tribes of Israel, we don't say the tribe of Joseph. That doesn't exist. We say the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Joseph gets two allotment, uh, two uh, names instead of one. Yeah, two portions instead of one. Very powerful. But the names, the, it's interesting to me that these tribes are all coming from the north side. Now, Robert Davidson says, near Ramah, uh, according to one Old Testament tradition, Rachel's tomb was to be found. She's weeping because she has lost her children. Now, here's another time where there's a weeping. Ramah was the staging point for the Israelite, uh, the Judeans who were taken into Babylon. Babylon. They were, Ramah is close to Jerusalem. That's where they chained them up. It was a place of sorrow. It was a place of weeping. That's why we're getting this passage, Ramah, this place of weeping. Now, God is saying, I don't want you to weep anymore. He says, I have surely, uh, I have surely heard uh, their, wait a minute, oh, okay. They're gonna, her, let me go back here, I, I see what I did. In her weeping comes a word from God telling her to dry her tears. Her children are not gone forever. They will return home. 
This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Surely I've heard Ephraim's moaning. You discipline me like an unruly calf, and I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you're the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented, and I came to understand. I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Now, how many recognize that many times God has to discipline us to change us? Listen to what Psalm 119 says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Isn't that interesting? But after I did my own thing. See, a lot of times we just go out and do our thing, and then God has to discipline us. After disciplining us, we don't stray the same way. We know what it means to have gone through brokenness. We know what it means to have repented. We know the goodness of God in the land of the living. We're going, why would I do that again? That's nonsense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Uh, is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him. In other words, God's prophesying against their behavior. I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Um, then we move on here. God is about to do a new thing. That's all, I always think that's fast, that statement. God's new thing is about to happen. So what is the new thing? Well, he shifts metaphors from Ephraim, his son, to Israel, his virgin daughter. And he says it this way, set up road signs and put up guideposts. Take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, virgin Israel, return to your towns. So, you know, I thought about this. Why do you set up road signs and put up guideposts? Why do we put up road signs today? Why do we do that? Yeah, direction. We need direction. And so what he's saying is, listen, as you're leaving, put up these road signs. You're going to come back this way. You need to find your way home, right? Can you see that? Uh, you know, I think I put, you put down a signage in order to help people find direction. Here we have a picture of the need to make sure that the way home is marked out. It's more than just geography that's being stated. It's rather the moral direction needed to find the way back to a right relationship with God. Gary Davidson says, but as if to emphasize that the new life cannot and must not simply be the old life all over again. You know, a lot of times people come and you know, they're all messed up and they're broken and they ask God to forgive and then they go back to the old life. You know what that tells me? Never been regenerated. They really didn't become a follower of Christ. See, you have to have a change of heart. And I can tell when people are true believers because when we repent, there's a change of heart. That's what repentance is all about. God changes our nature, gives us a new nature. You know, here this daughter was a turncoat. As a matter of fact, uh, he goes on to, uh, in Jeremiah, he says, how long will you wander, unfaithful daughter Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. The woman will return to the man. Well, what does this mean? The woman returns to the man. You know, some translations say the woman protects the man or the woman surrounds the man. Well, I, I did a little bit of reading. Most of them weren't quite sure what it meant. Was this a proverb in the land, the idea of a role reversal happening because in ancient Israel, the man was to protect the woman, but here the woman is doing it? 
The woman is surrounding the man. Tremper Longman says, since Israel is likened to a woman in this oracle, we might understand this as indicating um, that Israel has embraced God, thus expressing her repentant attitude that has turned from faithless wandering. And what is God's response when we come to him? What, how does God respond to our repentance? Well, he desires this relationship with us. You know, he designed us so that we would relate to him. So what does he do is he restores us. He forgives us. He accepts us. He reconciles with us. You know, he's the one that does the work. Actually, think about it. He came to earth to make this reconciliation possible. The only way you're going to get to God is through Christ. Think of the father's love toward the prodigal son. What's he doing? He's restoring the son. Here in verse 23, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountains. Speaking of Jerusalem. People will live together in Judah and all of its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and look around. My sleep has been pleasant to me. Here's a picture of the renewed state of life after the destruction of exile. You know, shattered and humbled. The nations repented. They've turned to God. And here's a picture of a new reality. It seems like waking up from a dream. And the dream is phenomenal. It's been pleasant to me, he says. And even in the past, groups like farmers and shepherds, how many know that those two groups many times clash? Why? Because they're fighting over precious land. And here, he says, they're gonna get along. Do you know what happens when you and I are reconciled to God? We become reconciled to each other. One of the beautiful things is when you get right with God, it affects your relationship with people. And we read in scripture how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. That's where God blesses. Isn't it amazing when you know, you're in a home and, and the people in the home love each other and there's harmony? Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's a gift from God, folks. We need to recognize that. That's amazing. But let me move on to the third thing, the third expression. The first one is joy instead of sorrow, comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And then there's that enrichment that comes because of a repentant attitude. And finally, the reality is even better than the dream. In other words, what God was telling them was gonna be even better. The promise was good, but the reality was better. You know, some people have asked me, Pastor, explain to me what heaven is like. Can I tell you it's gonna be really hard to do because the reality of heaven is gonna be better than anything we can explain. The reality of what God is promising is greater than what we can explain. And this is what happens. You know, we've all had surreal moments. You know what a surreal moment is? Surreal moment means, I can't believe this is happening, it's so good. This is, this is better than a dream. This is better than anything I could ever expect. Anybody ever have a moment where something happened, you go, this is far better than I could have anticipated. This is far better than I could have ever expected. That's a surreal moment. And this is what he's talking about here. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow and destroy and bring disaster. Remember, that was chapter one, verse 10. He was, he was telling them, repent or this will happen to you. And God did it because they didn't listen. So I will now watch over them to plant, build and to plant, declares the Lord. The very thing I'd warned them against, I did. Now I'm gonna do the very opposite. I'm gonna build you and plant you. I like this. This is restoration time. 
He goes on to say, in those days, people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Some of you are going, oh, what does that mean? Uh, well, let me just explain something. It just means that the parents sin and the children suffer. That's what it means. Parents sin and the children suffer. Now watch what's happening. A lot of the people in Jeremiah's day were saying, you know the reason why we're, we're having these bad experiences with the Babylonians is because our forefathers did all these terrible things and now we're suffering. See, they weren't taking responsibility. That's why they weren't repenting. They were blaming all of this stuff that was happening on their forefathers. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, think about this. People had stated that, pro that proverb that their current judgments were because of what their parents and forefathers had done. The current generation saw themselves without guilt, but rather as victims of the sins of past generations. I want to say that line again. The current generation that they were living in at that moment saw themselves without guilt, but rather as victims of the sins of past generations. Now watch what I say. Are we not living in a similar moment? Where we're trying to exercise the evils of the past and blame our forefathers for all of our current dilemma. That's what we're doing. We cannot see that we are with fault and that our present course of action is leading us into judgment as a society. See, we're not taking any responsibility what's happening right now. We're saying that, that would all happen back then. That's, we're, just, we're, we're just victims of what the people before us did. That's the current way of people are thinking. Yet like those ancient peoples, we need to hear that God addresses each generation for their own sins. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. We need to hear this. This generation needs to hear this first. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. What God is saying to us is if you sin, you will suffer. And it's true. And then we get this amazing promise. And I'm gonna close with this. God's amazing promise of a new covenant. As we go through the Old Testament, God entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve. God kept his part, Adam and Eve didn't keep theirs. Then we get down to Noah, same thing. You know, God, we messed up there. Abraham, messed up there. Moses, with the law, messed up there. How many know God keeps his end of the agreements? We always mess it up. Isn't that true? Robert Davidson says this about Jeremiah's anguish. It is Jeremiah's repeated complaint that the obligations of the covenant were ignored by the people. In other words, our part. They were happy to bask in all what God had given them. They were unwilling to give obedience to which he looked. In other words, everybody's happy that God does his part, blesses us, takes care of us, but we have a hard time doing what he's asking us to do. That's the part we struggle with. It's still the same today. You know, we struggle with doing what God wants. It is Jeremiah's bitter experience that no attempt at reformation, however sincere, could remedy the situation. All broke down on the sheer cussedness of human nature. What's he saying? We's the problem. That's what he's saying. We got a sin nature and we keep messing up. Then he says this beautiful statement. I love it. Between what God demanded and what the people could give, there was an unbridgeable gulf. The new covenant passage claims that the unbridgeable gulf can be bridged, but only from God's side. Is that beautiful? In other words, because we couldn't take care of the problem, God says, I'll do it. 
And so God became a man. And he fully obeyed the will of God. Jesus overcame every temptation. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was willing to lay down his life so that he could become the sin offering, so that he could take on the sin of every single person that's ever been created on this planet. This is amazing to me. He took on the sin of the world. And when you and I put our faith in Christ, what we're really doing is we're allowing him to be our substitute for us. And he, he takes our sin and exchanges and gives us his righteousness. His righteousness means his standing with the Father, which is perfect. So when you and I come to Christ, we actually now have a relationship with the Father that means as if we've never sinned, we've been acquitted. I use the word acquittal because we're guilty, but he acquits us, which means that no longer is there any legal uh, standing against us. It's just as if we've never sinned. Is that amazing or what? We've sinned, but it's just as if we haven't. And now we're in right relationship with the Father. We've been reconciled to the Father. I like this. He goes on to say here, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Is that beautiful? Let's stand. What makes this covenant so special? Is it because we can keep it? No, rather, it's because Jesus kept it. It's Jesus that makes this covenant work. Isn't that beautiful? And that's why Paul says that if, you know, if we come to Christ, if any man or woman is in Christ, think about this, when we come to Christ, we come. If any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. They are a new creation. All things pass away, all things become new. I like that. It's so powerful. You and I can't keep this covenant. Christ does. And all I need to do is stay in Christ. Christ in me, and I'm in Christ. I read through the letters of Paul. He says these things over and over again. In Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many think that's, that's pretty amazing? I remember the day I was reading that text, Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you, can you imagine what's happening to you? God is now living in you. Is that different? You see, in the Old Testament, God was with the people, but he wasn't in the people. In the New Covenant, God now is in the people. And God's change starts working from the inside out. That's different. The Spirit of God now abides inside of us. 
God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Why? Because he's in you. He's in you. I love that. And he will never leave you. How powerful is that? You and I say yes to God and there's a power at work in our lives. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead now lives in you. That's kind of a power over death. And that's why if we are in Christ, we have eternal life. Eternal life does not begin when you physically die. Eternal life begins when you open your heart and let Christ in. And so every head bowed this morning and give you an opportunity. You say, you know what? I don't know if Christ is in me, but I want him to be. I want to enter into a new covenant with God. I want this covenant to be, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of the agreement that God has made with humanity. I want to be reconciled to God. I want God to deliver me from the power that's destroying me and destroying me through addictions, and faulty thinking, and sorrow, and all kinds of things. I want eternal life. But it only comes if I unite with Christ. And that's the question. Are you united with Christ? Is Christ in you so that you can be in Christ? If that's your desire this morning, just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. I want to pray with you. It's good. It's beautiful. Christ in me, and I'm in Christ. It's beautiful. Let's just pray this morning. You know, some of you, I know what you're doing. You're raising your hands. You are a Christian. You've already have Christ in you. But you just want that, just that sense. You're just saying, I just want that. I want to have that powerful dynamic relationship. I want God to do a restorative work in my soul. I want God to set me free from anything that would encumber my relationship to God. Let's just open our hearts to him this morning. Let's lift our hands to him this morning. Say, Lord, we just give ourselves anew and afresh to you. We just thank you for this amazing, amazing restorative grace that you brought into our lives. You've turned our sorrow into comfort and joy. Lord, you've humbled us, but our greatness is not found in ourselves, it's found in you and what you've done for us. We've heard that today. Lord, we're rejoicing in the fact that you've given us this amazing approach to you. You've made a bridge. That this reality is even better than a dream. What you've done for us is even better than we could even come up for ourselves. We couldn't even imagine this idea that you would die for us. That one day we would actually not only be free from the penalty of sin, not only free from the power of sin, but one day free from even the presence of sin. That's amazing to me. That we will live forever and ever and ever. We love that about you. That we're not just living this earthly life, we're journeying through this earthly life, but we're gonna be with you for all of eternity. And we thank you for that. Even on Wednesday when I was teaching on the resurrection, you're gonna give us a new body. A new body. It's gonna work. Everything's gonna work. It's never gonna fade away. And we're gonna be in relationship to you and with others for all of eternity. We thank you for that.
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.